Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. You can put one in your hand. Hebrews chapter 1. How many of you have read the book of Hebrews? If your hand's not up, people are looking at you and saying, why have you not read them? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm only kidding. You might only be saved for a week. You might have read every other book but Hebrews. That's okay. You're going to get to go through it now. A lot of your hands went up. It is in the New Testament. If you're looking in the Old Testament, if you're new to the Bible, well, that's got to be an Old Testament. No, no. Hebrews is a New Testament book. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I'm just reading verses 1 through 4. God. How about that for an entry? God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for the presence of your spirit to fill this place. Lord, that you would anoint me, you'd open hearts and open eyes, remove any distraction. Calm our spirits. Lord, let us hear from Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. We'll approach the opening of the book of Hebrews and this new study with perhaps a little unorthodox approach, at least uh, to a typical opening. But I'm often unorthodox, so that should fit well. Just kind of the way I am. Typically, and this would be the case for most pastors and teachers, when I open a book, a new book, a Sunday or a Wednesday, and I give an overview from, I usually give an overview from a historical perspective, <clears throat> the background, the author, the major themes. Um, can I have you stop and pray again? Yes. Just pray with me. I, I'm very weak up here, more than you think. <laughs> I could really use God's strength. I wouldn't tell you if I didn't mean it. And so I'm here. I'm in the pulpit. I could use your prayer for just a moment. Please do that with me. I'm here. I'm glad to be here. But trust me, I could use your prayer. Father, we thank you again. We ask for your strength. We ask for your word now to go forth. We thank you for grace. We thank you for the power of Jesus. We thank you for the presence of Jesus. We thank you for the spirit that is greater than our flesh. And Lord, I pray that you would just anoint this time, pour out your spirit now on each and every one of us, myself included. But I know, Lord, we all need your strength. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So next week, I will do an overview. Next week, we'll, we'll go through what I would have as a typical overview. But for today, I just want us to focus on verses 1 
through 4, their beauty, their authority, their simplicity, and their complexity. How could God have all those things in the same couple of verses, right? All of those things working together. Say, how can it be simple yet complex? Isn't that the gospel itself? Complex enough that God, you read the whole thing, like, how, how does this even work? Why did God send a son into the world, and, and why did it have to be a crucifixion, yet so simple that a child can believe? These verses, they have a declaration. They have a triumph that we're going to look at together. These are truly amazing words that we just read, these verses 1 through 4. And they perfectly set the table for our time in this epistle. If you're taking notes today, our specific, that's the, the series study, but our specific study by himself this morning, his revelation and our redemption. Aren't you glad that Jesus revealed himself to you? Yes, yes, yes. Aren't you glad for redemption? Now, as I mentioned, I'll have that brief overview. We'll look at the kind of overview of the book of Hebrews from a high-level perspective. My prayer as we go through Hebrews is that each of us have a greater appreciation for forgiveness that has come through the blood of Jesus and for our faith to grow as our appreciation for grace grows. So turn your attention back to verse 1. Look back at verse 1 again. God, who at various times and various ways, we'll stop there for just a second, God. Various times, various ways. It's one word, God. One name opens this epistle to the New Testament church, and it's the name of God. The Greek word, you probably heard this word before, theos. The Greek word theos often refers to, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the word theos often refers to the Godhead. What do I mean by the Godhead? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. In other words, when you say theos, you can be speaking of the triune God. That God is one, and yet he is three individual persons in one. But this opening is unique, this opening passage that starts with just God or theos. It's unique in all the epistles. Take a look here. All the epistles... If you're taking notes, um, this first bullet, we're looking at the presence of God, the presence of God. But the opening, compare it to the other epistles in the New Testament. You take a look there. It's rather unique, isn't it? You see how so many of the other epistles start. Paul, a bondservant, Paul, 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 Paul. Paul wrote a lot, didn't he? <laughs> Paul had a lot of writing. James, Peter, Simon Peter. 1 John 1, 1 starts a little bit different. But most every epistle start with what? The author. The human author, that is. Uh, the one that actually was, was uh, scribing or actually dictating. In some cases, you know, Paul would dictate and one of his assistants would write. But very unique compared to all the other epistles. But this much is certain. God, as he is for all the scriptures, is ultimately the author. And this, this one book 
expresses that, just uh, that you have no doubt that when you see Scripture, it always starts from God. It's His will, and it's His presence that we're immediately drawn into with the opening of this epistle. God is like saying, look at me. Hello? Not me, but God said, you know, God. High and lifted up. It's as if God is saying, stop everything, look to me, and hear what I'm about to say. That's quite an opening for an epistle, isn't it? You know, the first churches that got it, they're used to Paul, Paul, Peter, John, you know, God. That's the opening. I mentioned this as being unique among the epistles, and it's more than just unique among the epistles. Uh, and those this is not just unique in the New Testament, but there's not a single book in the entire Bible that begins with God except for Hebrews. You can go read Genesis or Malachi. You can read the whole Bible. This is the only book in all of the Bible that begins with God or Theos. None other. But this book opens in this fashion. Now that the presence of God has arrested our attention, or I hope that it has, that certainly it was the desire of the writer, that it would arrest our attention, the writer now takes us immediately on a 4,000-year journey and all the way into eternity in four verses. You ever notice that about the scriptures? Like uh, uh, God will actually talk about the future and the present and the past all in like about 10 words sometimes. Because God sits outside of time, doesn't he? Yes, yes. And he speaks and he breathes through, breathes through this author and says, I want you to start with me, but in just about four verses, you're going to go on a 4,000-year journey and all the way into eternity, the presence of the Lord. Taking notes, take, let's take a look at starting in the middle of, well, the very beginning of verse 1. Starts with God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Whenever you see the word the fathers, it is speaking of the patriarchs. Men like Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, right? The men that were used to establish the family of God, used to establish the witness of God in this world. If it wasn't for Noah, none of us would be here, right? The Bible says we're all the spiritual offspring of Abraham. Even if you're not Jewish, you're of the spiritual lineage, right? Because you've been grafted in. Because Jesus came through that line. So he spoke in times past, but when Jesus arrived in Bethlehem, remember there had been a 400-year period of silence where no scripture had been given in that 400-year period. Now, you think of it, that that's a pretty significant thing. Our country's nowhere near 400 years old. Now, it is in the sense of uh, people that came here with the Mayflower, and you know, there's been that, you, know, you can go much further back. But as far as our nation being a recognized sovereign nation, it's you know, 200 and some years old now. But there had been a 400-year period, 400 no scripture had been given, the law, up through Malachi, though, had been completed. You have the law and the prophets. All that had been completed. So most of your Bible, if you actually open your Bible and you hold it from Malachi, and you just, the New Testament's much thinner, isn't it? Right? 
And by the way, the word testament means witness, right? So you have the, the, the original witness and you have the newer witness. Or it also can mean covenant. You have the older covenant. You have the newer covenant. Uh, I actually like that you know, Messianic Jewish believers in Israel, they do not like to refer to the Old Testament as the Old Testament. I actually think that they're right. It's better just to refer to it as the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. It's because it's not old. It's eternal. You could have the, the eternal law and prophets, the eternal epistles, or the eternal new witness, or the etern eternal covenant. But from Enoch, you ever you remember Enoch? Says he walked with God right up into heaven. Enoch's in the book of Genesis. You have Enoch, then to Noah, then to Samuel, then to David, then to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. In fact, all the way to, there was a guy who wore camel skins, and he had a great diet of locusts that he liked to dip in honey. Sounds good, huh? You can live off that, by the way, you know. Did you know that locusts are kosher in the Bible? You can't eat bats, but you can eat locusts according to the Bible. You know, just, just, that's just an extra bonus material for you there that's not, not in my notes, but... You know, John, then, then comes John the Baptist who, who would eat locusts and honey, lived out in the wilderness. And God had sent the prophets to proclaim and do one thing. All the prophets were preparing the way of the Lord. Did you know that? They were not a ministry unto themselves. They were not special in the sense that God says, these men are better than other men. No. They had a singular calling. I'm not any more special than any of you. I have a singular call, and that's to point people to Jesus. The prophets, their whole ministry, from Genesis to Malachi, but even beyond that, past the 400 years of silence, all the way to the ministry of John the Baptist, when John the Baptist was out saying, Behold the Lamb of God, preparing the way of the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 30, 11 13, For all the prophets and law prophesied until John, you follow over this? Mm -hmm. Jesus is saying that the ministry of the prophets ended with John. That John, even though he is, he's born around the same, he's a little bit older than Jesus, just a few months older than Jesus. Uh, he's born around the same time. John is the end of the old covenant prophets. And Jesus is the beginning of the new covenant. <laughs> John finishes out, all, but he's not in the Old Testament. Although, the Bible said he's like the spirit of Elijah. He's kind of a return, but he's really the finishing point. He's the, the period to all of the prophets that went before him. Now Moses said the Lord would someday raise up for himself a prophet that the people would hear. And Moses was looking to the fact that Jesus would be the prophet among all prophets. That he would prophesy and people would listen in a way that no one had ever listened before. Because he wasn't just going to be a prophet, he was also going to be the priest and the propitiation for sin. And so when he would speak of what was to come, he was speaking of himself. All the other prophets were pointing to Christ, but, but when Jesus were to come, Moses was saying, there's one coming that you will finally hear that has all the answers. Is all the fulfillment of everything 
that scriptures point to in type and foreshadow. All the scriptures themselves were pointing uh, forward to Christ, who in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So, and that includes all the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi. Everything was a type. Everything was a foreshadow. Everything was a, was a description of the coming of Messiah. Do you remember after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus? Remember this? And they're talking to him, and he's asking them, why are you all so bummed out? Like, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what just happened? And Jesus is like, no, tell me, tell me what happened. They, they killed him, and, and our leader is gone, and, and we don't know what to do. And Jesus is like, oh, that's really interesting. Let me, tell you, uh, let me tell you some stuff about the scriptures. And he said their hearts burned within them. And essentially, it goes on to say that after Jesus just vanishes from they realize that he taught them everything in the scriptures were all about him. And then they realize they had been talking to the Messiah, and that they realize that all these scriptures that they knew from childhood they didn't know were about Jesus were all about Jesus. When you and I get to heaven, Jesus is going to teach us all, I believe, and you're going to find verses that you never knew were about Jesus. Jesus is going to say, yeah, that was about me. That one was about me. I didn't get that. I didn't see that one. But we're going to understand that all of these things were about him. But as the writer of Hebrews proclaims, now, in our time, he says, as in these last days, you know, the clock started for the last days when Jesus ascended back into heaven. And this is where it's really, really important that you not fall asleep spiritually. We are closer right now, this moment, to Jesus returning than any person has ever been in the history of the world right now. Would you, would you not agree with that? Yes. Yes. As I said several months ago, the sand will never go back up through the hourglass. It only comes one direction. And I don't know how much sand is left, but if the last day started 2,000 years ago, we're in the last of the last days. You guys know I like football more than I should. I get it. I really like it. Football games. Now, my wife can tell you that the longest period of the game is the last two minutes. She doesn't like when I tell her there's two minutes left in the game because she knows that means there's like three hours left. Right? There's timeouts. Both coaches have three timeouts. There's the two-minute warning. There's guys faking injuries. There's commercial breaks. And all of a sudden, two minutes turns into like 58 minutes. When she's ready to watch what she wants to watch, I'm like, it's only two minutes left. That's kind of the way we're in right now. We're in the two-minute warning, and we're lulled to sleep with all the timeouts and all the stoppage of play, believing that this is going to go on for eons, and it's not. The sand is still moving quickly through. And what's happening all over planet Earth is the Earth is groaning for the returning of Jesus. And so the last days have already started. Don't fall asleep and think, well, this is going to go on forever. I'm going to see great, great, great grandchildren. Maybe, but maybe Jesus comes soon. He said, behold, I'm coming quickly in the book of Revelation. But the clock has started. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. 
The last days began with Jesus being his self-witness. He did not need anyone else to testify. He testified of himself. He told parables of himself. He said, you know, when you killed the, uh, the vineyard owner's son, they're like, who are you talking about? Who do you think? He was saying. All of these things, he began the last days by coming. So you, and even, even if you look at it from a timeline perspective, you know we're in the last days. If you know math, right? As you remember preschool, you actually get a block for each section, right? If I, if I took 6,000 years and each 1,000 years is a block, the first 4,000 was from creation to the cross, 4,000 years. Since then, it's 2,000 years. That would give you two blocks on this side, four blocks on this side. Where would you put the greater sign? Right? Right on the, towards the four blocks because you have 4,000 years. So the last days would be the lesser sign. We're in the last, it's a much shorter period. It's half the time. But we're at the end of 2,000 years, so where are we really at? really close, getting closer. And even if you're not that, you know, I, I turned 50 this year. I might have 30 years left. I might have a lot less than that left. You might have less than that left. So we're all in the last days. And the Lord wants us to understand that. And that's why Jesus said, because the last days, I'm going to testify personally, and no one will have an excuse because Jesus said, say, well, I didn't understand this prophet. I didn't understand that prophet. Jesus said, how about myself? I spoke in red letters in your Bible. He's his own witness. He was the one that had been foretold. And let's look at this awe-inspiring description of Jesus. In verse 2, he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself circle that. By himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let's look at this last point if you're taking notes. The person of his son. What is described in verses 2 through 4 leaves the world without excuse. There'll be no excuse. No one can say God, if you would have only sent a reliable witness. God said, I sent more than a reliable witness. I sent redemption. I sent my son. That God sent his son into the world to reveal himself, to relinquish himself to evil men like you and me. He turned himself over. He said, no one could take his life. <coughs> <coughs> But he turned himself over to death. But then he raised himself to life. I mean, I, that still blows my mind. How about your? He raised himself. Went in the grave. Two days later, says, that's enough of that. These verses, especially given that the whole book begins with God or Theos, the whole book begins with God himself. It sounds much like God on the Mount of Transfiguration, doesn't it? What was said by God on the Mount of Transfiguration? We believe that uh, the, uh, the team that went to Israel, I believe that the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, I, I could be wrong, but I believe this is a very high mountain. I believe that 
was Mount Hermon. It's almost 10,000 feet tall. Our team saw it snow-capped, full of snow. And I believe that Jesus took the apostles. He only took Peter, James, and John with him, but he took them up. And remember there on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, it was, the cross was, appro- was fast approaching now. And Jesus is standing there, and he sheds his humanity for a little bit, and all of a sudden he begins to be glorified, and his glory is amazing. And standing with him is the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. What a scene, huh? And they each represent Genesis through Malachi, the codified word at that time. There was no New Testament written yet. Jesus was the New Testament. So they were standing among the living epistle, Jesus, but they were also standing with the law and the prophets. And there they are on the Mount of Transfiguration. And everyone knows everybody. How is Peter and James? They all know that's Moses, that's Elijah. There's no one's wearing name tags. And everyone knows who everybody is. Because when we get to heaven, you'll know even as you're known. You're going to walk, you're going to, hey, there's Job, there's Mary, there's Esther. How did they get in here? Uh, yeah, that kind of thing. You'll be, uh, that'll be good, though, won't it? That'll be good. You're going to get some surprises, too. You know, like, I didn't even know. Why did this happen? Well, you and I didn't see each other last week, and I got saved. You know, so that kind of thing. And so there'll be some of that. But, but everyone knows everybody. And then Peter gets the brilliant idea that says, you know, because everyone here looks more spiritual than me, let's build a temple for all three. And God, Moses and Elijah are gone. And what does God say? This is my beloved son, and whom I am well pleased. Hear him. That's what he says. It's similar to the beginning of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word what was God. The writer leaves no doubt that the coming of Christ was the coming of the one who was the heir. He was the heir to the Father. He already had the rights, the keys to the dominion of this world. He came to the world because he was the creator of the world. That's what John 1 tells us. He's the heir of all things. He's come down to walk in the dust of the very world he made. He would then die on a tree that he created with nails that he created. This is why his name also means what? Emmanuel. God with us. Don't just think of that at Christmas time. It was always true. It's still true, and it will forever be true. He's the very brightness of the glory of the Father. And by the way, the other time that God said this was when the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. There's two times that God said that. One was the Mount of Transfiguration. The other was at his baptism. John baptized him. John said, I don't deserve to baptize you. I don't even, believe, I don't even deserve to touch your sandal strap. Right, right, right. Which, you know, that's as low, that's as low as you, uh, article of clothing you have is what you're wearing on your feet. John said, I don't even deserve, but Jesus said, no, no, no. I want you to baptize me because it's going to represent my death, burial, and resurrection. It's going to represent what I'm about to do in the world. I'm going to lay down my life, but I'm going to raise it back up. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to bring it all to pass. Of course, the dove fall, falls down on Jesus, and God says again, or he said, actually said that first, maltransfiguration came second, this is my beloved son whom I play well pleased. Hear him. Twice God says it. Uh, the Bible says things are established by two witnesses. So you have that 
dual witness of God saying, all the other prophets, yes, you'll be accountable for what they said, but you'll ultimately be accountable for what Jesus has said and what he has done. But he's the very brightness, goes on in verse 3, he'll be in the very brightness of his glory. Whose glory? The Father's. Jesus is the glory of the Father. We have a type of this in the Bible says that wives are the glory of their husbands. I know that that offends today's anti-scripture society. They're going to have to get over it because that's the way that God designed relationship. But Jesus is not inferior to the Father, and yet he's the glory of the Father. He's equal to the Father. But there's a headship within the, within the Godhead, right? The Son surrenders and submits to the will of the Father. The Spirit submits to the will of the Father, and they all work together. There's a beauty in it all. But Jesus is the very brightness of the glory of the Father, and yet he veiled his glory for those 33 years, except for that little glimpse on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And then post-resurrection, you see some of his glory as well. But he veiled it. For what? For the will and the mission of God. For the will and the mission of God. The brightness of his image, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. There's the mission, right? That's the mission right there. If Jesus comes and lives a great life and doesn't go to the cross, we're still going to hell. Right? Not only that, he also has to rise from the dead. The mission has to be complete. Jesus is the only one who can say these words and it be true. It is finished. You and I can't finish anything. And when we do, it's still imperfect, right? I'm glad to finish things, but in the sense, I look back and I'm like, well, it's finished. But uh, it's like, you ever, it's like um, some of your artwork in fourth grade, right? Here's the finished product. But not Jesus. The very brightness of the Father, he veiled the will, I mean, he veiled his glory to complete the mission, to complete the will of God. The disciples briefly saw a little bit of that glory. And they would later use that, what they saw, to write and say, no, we, we, we did see just a glimpse of his power and authority. Now, they saw it in miracles and other things, too. But uh, outside of time... Jesus stepped into time, and, but in ways that we can't really understand, I, we, this is beyond our comprehension. Do you realize that Jesus stepped outside of time? I'm, he, I'm see, sorry, he stepped into time and yet remained outside of time. In, in, a, in one sense, he never gave up being God, but in another sense, he did, because he was always all man and what? All God. All man and all God. Now, you say, I don't really get that. Wait till you get to heaven. God will help explain it to us all. I don't worry about it, but I know for a fact that he was still upholding everything by the word of his power. He was still slain before the foundation of the earth. He was still before time, and yet he stepped into time. Because it says, it's a present state term, upholding all things. Not he did or will, but current state. He's always upholding. He was holding the universe together, and yet in the dispensation of time, he subjected himself to the constraints of the world simultaneously. Mm -hmm. 
He remains God, and yet he steps into human suffering and a torturous death that you and I can't even comprehend. And he felt it all. And yet he still is remaining in complete power. He told Pilate, he goes, you have no power except for I'm giving you. I always love the fact that Jesus had the power to raise himself up, but he had the power to lay himself down. Incredible power. It takes a lot, by the way, as you follow in the footsteps of Jesus, it takes more power to die to your flesh than it does to show everybody how great you are. Anyone can, can just run off at the mouth. But it takes a lot of power to be under control, doesn't it? And Jesus exhibited that power. He put on human flesh. He went all the way to the cross. And he had the power to lay down his life as the sacrificial lamb of God. He himself purged our sin. There was no one else that could help Jesus on this mission. Jesus couldn't say, you know what, can I have one of the apostles help me on this one? Maybe Elijah and Moses, you guys should stick around a while. With your righteousness, we can pull this off. No, they weren't part of the equation. They, they were there to minister to Jesus, but they could do nothing of the solution. It had to be him by himself, only himself. All the other gods that people worship, Muhammad never died for anybody. He put people to death, but he didn't die for anybody. Jesus died for people's sins. He laid down his life. He purged with his own blood. Charles Spurgeon said, The marvel of heaven and earth, of time and eternity, is the atoning death of Jesus Christ. This is the mystery that brings more glory to God than all creation. The death of Jesus, the purging of sins, more glory to God. Additionally, the blood of Jesus, it was the only blood sacrifice that could ever cleanse and purge sin. There had already been thousands of lambs, thousands of goats, thousands of bulls had been sacrificed in the law, or period of the law. None of those things were acceptable to the holiness of God. They were all foreshadows that a sacrifice would finally come, but all the blood and bulls, and we're going to see this in the book of Hebrews, couldn't ever atone for sin. It had to be the blood of Jesus. One of the major Hebrews' theme is this is uh, Jesus himself is the only atonement. And it's the greatest act of love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? It's the greatest act of love has ever been demonstrated. Elizabeth Elliot said, our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself and protecting from suffering. But the love of God did not protect his own son. Aren't you glad that the love of God didn't protect Jesus? Because he was loving us through Jesus. But three days later, still in verse 3, look what it says. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Three days later, well, he rose from the dead, then he went 40 days, then he went back up into heaven. But three days later, he had conquered death. And then 40 days later, he walked up the Mount of Olives. The, the team, we were there. You were standing on the Mount of Olives. You were looking right down Jerusalem. Jesus notably did a number of things on the Mount of Olives, Olive Discourse which was before the cross where he predicted the, the destruction of the temple. But then he goes back up the Mount of Olives after the resurrection, 40 days after he rose from the dead, and he stands there, and all of a sudden, after he's done 
telling them parting words, he all of a sudden just ascends up into the clouds. Is, what, can you imagine that scene? All of a sudden, Jesus starts just going straight up, and he vanishes in the clouds. Did you know he's coming back the same way? In the clouds again? One of my favorite verses in Revelation is he's seated on a cloud. But he goes up into heaven, and he ascends, according to the scriptures, all the way to his royal throne. Outside of the universe's comprehension, just next thing, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. An angel proclaimed that he would return exactly as he left. That even though an angel was there at the tomb, actually two angels, but one, it depends on you know, which scene you're looking at. But even though an angel was there, an angel was even in the Garden of Gethsemane to strengthen him before the cross. An angel was there after his resurrection. An angel was there to tell everybody, why are you gazing up into the sky? Jesus is coming back the same way. God used these angels to proclaim, and they were mighty, powerful, infinitely more powerful than we are. And yet Jesus is infinitely more powerful than all the angels combined. We're going to look more at this next week when we look at verses 5 through 14. And this is what the Father wants us to see. It says, he sat on the majesty, uh, right hand of majesty on high, and he, become, he has become so much better than the angels. He has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than he. You know, Jesus has a name written on him, faithful and true, Right? God says his name is above all name. It's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow. Amen? It's at the name of Jesus. People that use his name as a swear word, you will do not want to meet him on judgment day. You might want to get it right with God now. It's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow. And this is what the Father wants us to see. He wants us to see the glory of his Son. My prayer is that all of our faith will grow as we go through the book of Hebrews. Our appreciation for salvation. I don't care how long you've been saved. Did you know God wants you to appreciate your salvation more than you currently do? And when you do, it'll transform your life. It'll transform my life. I, I think that no matter how long I've been saved, I realize the headroom I have in appreciation is pretty big still. How do I know this? Because I still complain a lot. And I complain about really dumb things. And so do you. And yet God loves us anyway, doesn't he? Yes, he does. but, but Hebrews is going to show us that headroom we still have for a growth in appreciation, for a growth in understanding, for a growth in faith. Do you believe you could have more faith? Yes. Yes. Yeah. We're to pray for the gift of faith. We've all been given a measure of faith, but God says you're going to, and by the way, why it's so important that we study a book like Hebrews, ne number one, it starts with the word God. But faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what? The Word of God. My prayer is that our faith will grow, our appreciation for salvation will grow, and our vision of Jesus will grow. We'll see him high and lifted up on a more regular basis in our life, that our vision of him will grow. I want to close with this quote from John Ellen. He was a pastor in the 1600s. I'll read it to you. No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven, who does not in some measure behold it by faith in this world. In other words, God is saying, you're going to see me face to face, but I want you to exercise faith now when you can't see me face to face. Amen? Amen. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, we just bow our heads before you. We humble our hearts before you. We thank you that Theos, God, you've spoken in various ways and in various times. We thank you for all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, but we thank you most of all. You spoke through Jesus, your only begotten son. And Lord, that you sent your son on a mission that only he could complete, and he in fact did complete. And thank you, Lord, that those of us who are saved, you've purged our sins and you've sat down at the right hand and you will soon be bringing us to be with you forever. Never to suffer again in this world. Never to experience again death or disease or fear or anything else. And we look forward to that day. But until that time, Lord, I pray that our faith would grow. That our appreciation for salvation will grow. And our vision of you lifted up will also grow. For these things, Lord, will transform us and make us more effective in bringing your gospel, your truth, and salvation to a world that does not know you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.